we're recording. Apologies for the delivery scooter men revving outside my window. <laughs> this is Beyond the Pass. Conversations with people from all walks of hospitality life. Centering mental health, Beyond the Pass is a conversation about life, hospitality and what makes us get out of bed each day. Welcome back to Beyond the Pass. We are so excited to be sitting down with Hasela Vilas. Hasela is the co-founder of Not 9 to 5, which is a global nonprofit leader in mental health advocacy and education in the hospitality sector. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's so great to be here. I would really love to just start with how you got started in the hospitality industry. It was a long time ago. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm going to age myself here. <laughs> yeah, it was a long time ago. So I'm 42 now and I was 17 uh, at my first job. So it was a long time ago. And I started as a host. It was, you know, one of those jobs that I was really drawn to and attracted to, but I didn't really know what I'd signed up for. Um, you know, because you're young and, and you're naive and, and you don't know. <laughs> Genuinely, no one prepares you for what it's like. I mean, I will say these days people are probably a little bit more prepared because there's more accuracy, I feel like, in storytelling and, and stuff like that. But in, in my case, that was not the case. And uh, I was, I feel like, thrown into the fire, literally. But I very quickly moved up as into being promoted to a server and then, you know, the list goes on and on. I've worked in tons of restaurants, all the different service, frontline service jobs you can think of, and up until even owning a restaurant many, 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 many years later, and owning different uh, businesses in the space. So really grew up. I feel like I really grew up in this industry, uh, although it does feel like a different industry when I think back to that time. I'm not going to lie. It has changed <laughs> so much. I feel the same way. And then I don't no longer work frontline service currently today, but I work, I, I call it hospitality adjacent. So <laughs> I'm still in the space. A lot of my network and close friends are in the space or chefs or owners or operators or servers or what have you. So many different titles out there, so many different roles as we know this industry is so vast, but I'm no longer the last frontline service well, the last example of that that I did was in events. I did events for the last, not the last four years, but before then, I'd mm -hmm. done it for about 10 years. And in, in events, I mean, sometimes, yeah, you have to do catering. Sometimes you have to do private dinners. Sometimes you have to do massive conferences of over 20,000 people. Like it just depends and events are so, you know, again, very vast. So that's how I entered the industry and still stayed in it. And now I'm currently adjacent. What was the thing when you talk about the fact that you were attracted to it when you got that first job as a host? What do you think that thing was that made you want to be a part of it? So this is a very interesting question. I love this question so much. I think that this question is answered by differently by people that have reflected and done a lot of inner work differently than people who haven't. Yeah. And the reason I, I the reason I, I preface with that is because if you'd asked me this question five years ago, I would have given you a very different answer. In the last five years, I've done a really ton of deep inner work um, and reflection, lots of therapy, lots of other types of healing as well. And I now see it very differently. So I'll give you both a little bit of both of the answers. The first one is at that age, what I was drawn to was I was obsessed with culinary experiences. I still am. That hasn't changed. <laughs> 
Um, I was obsessed with being around that experience. How are they created? Who, who is, you know, how do you make that your job? You know, and all these kinds of things. I'm very drawn to that. Um, I was very drawn to the magic of hospitality, you know, the, the beautiful exchange of energy that happens in the hospitality environment. Um, and I was very drawn to as well, uh, just how little I knew. So I wanted to learn more. I love learning. I'm like an avid learner. I'm always learning. And so for me, I was like, Oh, there's so much I don't know. Like there's just so much, so many ways I could like learn. And, and as soon as I got in there, it got, that got validated. Like I was learning Mm -hmm. about wine. I was learning about food. I was learning about all these different things. So that was, you know, what was drew me at that age. And, and if you asked me until about five years ago, that's the answer I would have given you. And now with all the, you know, reflection I've done mm-hmm. and self-awareness I have, I actually realized also there was another thing happening. So it's not to take that away. It's just to supplement my understanding of myself and my childhood and um, also what happens as we, you know, get into the workforce and as we're growing up, I mean, 17 is such a vulnerable age. I grew up in a Latin culture environment. My family's Chilean. And a lot of my growing up had, like, was centered around food and drink, um, had a lot of chaos around it, had a lot of loud, bustling, constant things, you know, like loud music, lots of loud people. <laughs> of things you know happening around me a very chaotic environment very fun though like very like social and laughing and dancing to like the wee hours of you know the night and the morning um that was normal for me that's what I grew up in oh and also no one talks about uh, emotional experiences out in the open no one addresses mental health in any way whatsoever everything is kind of like smiles and joy and you know And I realize now that I found just another version of that in restaurants, you know, and I don't think I realized that until about, you know, the last five years Um, that I really kind of, I I found a new, I hate calling it a family because it's Mm -hmm. not, but I found a new familiar environment that felt very comfortable for me because unfortunately (laughs) I'm I'm quite comfortable. I'm quite comfortable in chaos. just the way I was raised. And so in restaurants, I felt at home. Mm-hmm. So that was the other reason I think I was drawn to it is I, I felt completely, and still to this day, you can throw me in any restaurant and I completely melt. Like mm-hmm. I, I feel at home. I think it's such a common experience. And I was just having a chat with an old boss of mine who owns several restaurants here in London. And he was saying that at the end of the day, because we were talking about smarter ways to work, ways that you can work where you sort of minimize the chaos. And he was like, I kind of have to accept that for whatever reason, the way I was wired, the way I grew up, I have a propensity for chaos. Like I thrive in that kind of intensity. And I guess the way that I grew up informing my practice in restaurants was that hard work and self-sacrifice were the only ways to be good. So if you get into an industry where they're like, sacrifice everything and work your ass off, I'm like, oh yeah. And to your point, familial and familiar. I think that's a great way to put it. And Correlating our work environments with family, I agree with you, so fucked up, but we didn't know that then. But I think familiar is a great way to frame it. I think everyone I know that kind of stuck their feet in and then stayed, it's because it reflected something that they understood to be 
regular or normal and even and the good parts also right like sending around food all the joy all of the laughter like a real investment in experience being positive all of that stuff can it's so fascinating how it reflects in our history is there a moment for you where you really started to understand it as a career or as the possibility that it could be a career or did you sort of go in with that lens Oh, no, I didn't go in with that lens at all. <laughs> at 17, I had no idea what I was doing. Um, <laughs> and it's funny because, of course, at that age, you do think you know exactly what you're doing. And it's so funny to me to think back how much I thought I knew. <laughs> and realizing now, like, how little I actually knew, it's actually quite wonderful. Um, it makes me laugh a lot. So I, I did not go in with the intentions of a career whatsoever. And I think if you told me at that age, I wouldn't have believed you. Um, anyways, so I went into it, no, as a, as a, as a curiosity, as a, um, you know, I need to make money. Like I, I need a job and this is super, I'm super curious about this. And so, and again, once I got in, I was like, oh, and I'm also super comfortable in these environments. This does not scare me in any way whatsoever. If anything, like similar to your friend, I get off on it and I thrive. Like I did so well, I do so well. It perform, you know, mm -hmm. quote unquote, perform so well in those environments. And like I said, I still could. Like even though I haven't served in years, you could throw me into any environment, and I could put on my hospitality face and take over. <laughs> so, anyways, I have that still. Um, but I think I realized it was my career when I started my first business in the industry. Because then I was putting a lot of money and a lot of time and a lot of energy and a lot of effort and it actually required an immense amount of sacrifice. Um, and so at that stage I was like, yeah, this isn't no longer just to pay the rent or whatever. This is, I'm making this my career. I'm choosing this intentionally. I am putting in, like I said, like blood, money, sweat, tears, all of it <laughs> into this business. Um, and I was so passionate about it. I was so, I took it so seriously. That was the difference too, is I wasn't messing around. I don't know. Can I swear on this? Yeah, podcast? of course. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I was like, I don't know, different podcasts. Um, I wasn't fucking around anymore. Like it was just so much nonsense before. And I just, I wasn't here for that anymore. Um, and because I was taking it so seriously, there was a different level of pressure there was a different level of expectations I was putting on myself. No one was putting this on me. I was putting it on myself. Um, and it was this uh, event business that I started called the Toronto Underground Market. I live here in Toronto, Canada. And I um, realized that there was no place where you could kind of go as an emerging entrepreneur to start and just kind of test the market with your brands. So there's a lot of emerging brands, emerging talent. Um, we did auditions. It was a whole thing. And I, I was very influenced and inspired by the one in San Francisco. And then I kind of made it my own here in Toronto and it blew up. Like we were selling out over 2000 tickets every time we did one. And, um, we were auditioning, you know, dozens and dozens of people, <clears throat> excuse me. And then every event had about 25 to 30 vendors. And that includes like craft beer, local wine, um, you know, local spirits that included every kind of ethnic cuisine you can imagine because Toronto is very multicultural and, you know, it, and I was also, I was like, this is for anyone, including home cooks. So I didn't care if you never worked in the, in, in, in the industry, 
I just needed to know that you were taking this seriously. So that's why we had you audition is because I wanted to see like your marketing. I wanted to see how you spoke. Like, can you speak to groups of people without shutting down, (laughs) you know, um, all these different things. And I was taking it very seriously. And like I said, I invested a lot of money and time and energy and effort and sacrifice into that. So at that stage, it became officially my career. And then from that event, you know, my partner and I at the time, my ex-husband and I started a restaurant. So we launched a restaurant out of that event business that I was running that also turned out to explode and do very well successfully. So yeah, I mean, it was literally my entire, it wasn't just my career, it was also my entire life even at home because he was doing the restaurant and I was helping create that with him. And then I was also running the event business um, and I had two little kids as well at the time. So <laughs> it was it was 1 million percent my career. <laughs> By then, I was no longer taking it like a, you know, like a casual thing. Were there other examples or mentors that you had within the industry where you kind of sparked like, oh, it's possible to just build your own thing or it's possible to take the things I love about this and kind of edge into that space? Or was it simply the matter of sort of going to San Francisco, getting inspired, being like, this will work and kind of just leaning into it that way? So to be clear, I didn't go to San Francisco till years later. I literally read an article. I love (laughs) like like, I think this is something people really need to hear sometimes is that like a lot of entrepreneurs they don't tell you their story because most of their stories are unbelievable like truly my story of how I started that business is unbelievable I literally read an article about it and I was like oh that's possible oh Toronto needs this I started a blog in a cafe like randomly on a random day with no business plan with nothing and was like I'm gonna start a blog page because it was free. It was Tumblr. Like who cared? <laughs> I created a blog page that said, Hey, Toronto, what, like, would you want to do, like, would you want to see something like this? And I was like, I want to start this, apply here to be a vendor, apply here to volunteer, apply. <laughs> like It was just so, I thought it was going to be like 20 people that wrote me. And I'm not kidding you within the next 48 hours. Uh, and I started a Twitter account too and did the same thing. And within 48 hours, I was receiving media requests. I had hundreds of people apply. Like it blew up, like literally from like, I'm gonna start a blog in a cafe because I'm a bored stay-at-home mom. (laughs) And I know this industry like the back of my hand and I know there's nothing like this here and we could really use something like this here. And I know my husband at the time, you know, wanted to start a restaurant, so maybe it could help him too. It would help all of us and it just, you know. So I just want to clarify that because I think sometimes people think that like the only way to start a business is with a plan. And I actually think that making a plan is really smart, but I also think no one ever fully follows a plan. It's the same as like a birth plan when you have kids, like it never goes to plan. It never goes to plan. So plans are important. Lay out and forecast your numbers and all of that. Yes. And also it's okay to just do like, it's okay to just throw something at the wall and be like, oh shit, it's stuck. Okay. I guess I'm doing this thing now. Um, and unfortunately I've been asked this question so many times in my career. I did not have mentors. I still have yet, like I've had many few people that have inspired me from afar, but I've never met them. I don't have, I wish I had, I wish I had more mentors. I wish I'd see more women of color in leadership. Um, all the people in power that I saw that inspired me for the most part, didn't look like me, um, didn't sound like me and uh, didn't, um, didn't come from the same places that I came from. 
So I've had to wing a lot of my career. I've had to really like, and I have this theory that no one knows what they're doing. I really truly believe that. I, I tell my kids this all the time. I'm like, no one actually knows what they're doing though. Like they're all really good at fooling you and your teachers and your principal and you know, all these celebrities and like entrepreneurs and like Steve Jobs, all these people, no one has a clue. No one had a clue. No one has a clue. No one will ever have a clue <laughs> as to what the fuck they're doing. And we're just pretending like we know. And so I really believe that because I see it every day. I, I've yet to meet a person who knows what the fuck they're doing. Um, and so I, I, I really just was winging it. And I was like, well, if they figured it out, I can figure it out. I think the difference between maybe me and someone else is to being like, well, I would like to do that, but I can't do it. Is the difference between them and me is that I don't tell myself I can't do it. First of all, that's like a hard no. I tell my, either I want to do it or I don't want to do it. That's a different story. But I think I, I believe that I can figure it out. It's not that I believe that I'm going to be super successful at it. It's just that I believe that I can figure it out. I believe everything is, you know, someone has this book called Everything is Figure Outable, Marie Forleo. And I, I've never read the book, but I, that sentence, like that statement to me is like how, like I, I work as I believe everything is figure outable. I believe that you can figure everything. All you need to do is just like believe in your own ability your own skills to be able to do it. And listen, sometimes you're not in that place and you're not believing in yourself and that's okay too. You know what I mean? At that stage though, I did. I really had a lot of confidence in my abilities to figure it out. I knew I didn't have the skill set. I'd never thrown an event before I started an event business. <laughs> you know what I mean? My husband at the time had never worked in a restaurant before opening a restaurant. So we had just this like blind, you know, faith, but also confidence in that like we can put a team together that knows what they're doing you know and that's what I did I put a team together that knew what they're doing and and I knew a lot of people in the space that did throw events and that I had a lot of respect for and, and then I also met a lot of people that I didn't know I was like oh hi nice to meet you yeah yeah you want to work on this with me great <laughs> you know and then we just have, are still friends to this day which is funny um like decade over a decade later so unfortunately, no, I did not have enough mentors in the space. I find that the culinary industry, um, like I like I said earlier, just most of the leaders, most of the people that have power and the most privilege are not like me. I'm not a woman of color. Um, and most of them are cis, hat, white, you know, Caucasian males. I think when you are looking for mentorship or guides, it becomes really challenging. I think it's interesting that confidence that you're going to be able to figure it out, how much of that is inherent and how much of that is when you're developing a business in an industry where there are no role models mm -hmm. for you? What other choice do you have? <laughs> Figuring it out is all you got to do. And so it's interesting. And I, I think and I hope that it's changing. And it's interesting to me because you're definitely a role model to us and the team here. And I'm sure you're a role model to a lot of people. So that out of that experience, you could build something that now people can look to and say, wow, what did they do? And what was their journey? And being transparent about it and how often we build what we didn't have for other people. Honestly, I see the work I do. So, you know, we haven't gotten fully to how that led to Not 9 to 5, but the work I do with Not 9 to 5 is a love letter to my 20 year old self. 
it is absolutely what I needed to hear, to know, to, to read, to, to like all of the things, to be around, you know, um, I didn't have that. And I really desperately needed that at that, at that, that whole decade, really, <laughs> uh, still do, but it exists, it exists more now. It didn't exist at all back then, like zero, like in the negative, actually, <laughs> you know? So I, I, I had to create something for myself in order to, I think, stay in the industry. It was that or leave, you know? It was a method, it was, I guess, a survival mode type yeah. thing. Was there something specifically that sparked your move into mental health advocacy? Or was it just sort of like a decade of experiences? Yeah, so I think it was, I think there's various factors to stories like these, right? Like to stories like mine in the sense that you, it's never one thing, or at least for me, from what I have seen and experienced, it's never one thing. It's like a buildup of things that have been happening for a long time. And maybe that one last thing was like, they call the last straw, you know? Um, but I think it's always an, a, a buildup of things, uh, a variable for actors also. Sometimes it's the right time, right? There's the set and the setting of when you make a decision. It just happens because you're in the right environment, finally, or you're surrounded by the right people, finally, or you finally feel like emotionally and mentally safe to say the thing or do the thing. So I think it had been building for me for a long time. I know when I started the Toronto Underground Market, that first event business that I ran, it was 2011 to 2014. And within those three years, I was I put myself in a leadership role um, that was way larger than anything I'd had in my in my entire career up until that point. I'd managed maybe smaller teams, but this was like extreme uh, amounts of people all answering, <laughs> you know, to me. And so I immediately put together a committee so that there was like a lot of us. Ultimately, it was always, I guess, my decision because I owned the business. But then I got a business partner and it was the two of us making all the decisions. But we really tried to involve the entire committee in the decision-making process. And immediately in getting my chance to be a leader, I wanted to do everything that I didn't have access to. I wanted to do everything that I never saw in hospitality, that I never experienced in hospitality, that I, the brigade system mentality of, of restaurants just didn't work for me. I think it's so archaic, antiquated, oppressive, you know, and actually not effective. Um, at all whatsoever. And my vision was to create, like was to be in a creative environment, an innovative environment and brigade system hierarchy, any kind of hierarchy, like triangle hierarchy destroys that because you're forcing, you know, it gives the leader decision fatigue. It It's, you know, silences all the people that have ideas too. So I really wanted to not do that. And a big part of, again, going against what I was raised in was talking about my mental health. So I remember I had this one dinner where I had the whole committee there and it was the first time that I kind of said it out loud. And I, I said, we don't need to talk about this for a long time, but I just need to say this because I need you all to know. Um, and it's not that I need you to tell me, it's, this is just something that I need to do. Because I really believe it needs to come from the person. I don't think, even legally, you're not required to tell your employer any details about what's happening with you you know, other than like, I'm struggling and these are the accommodations I'm requesting. But for me, it was just more like I wanted to because I felt emotionally and mentally safe. And I wanted to be the kind of leader that was like, hey, I broke my elbow. I need some time off is the same as, hey, I have depression and I need some time off. 
I really wanted it to be the same. I was really sick of it being different because I was seeing people, you know, when you're physically ill, you get certain treatment and accommodations and empathy and all these things. And then when you have either, you know, mental health challenges, substance use challenges, mental illness, whatever you want to call it, there's so many names for what we describe these things as. I didn't feel like the same uh, was given in terms of compassion, in terms of time off, in terms of all these different things. And so I remember telling them all, I live with depression and anxiety. I'm in therapy. I'm getting treatments. I'm getting better. Um, But sometimes I'm not going to get back to you. And sometimes I'm not going to be able to talk, you know, or I'm not going to be able to deal with things in, in the moment. And I'm not going to be able to I may seem different from one day to the next. And I want you all to know that it has nothing to do with any of you. That is totally my experience and that I'm just going through some stuff, you know? Um, And I think it's funny. People have told me, you know, now years later that they remember that dinner. Like they remember when I told them because at that time, no one was talking about these things. And to have that modeled from your boss, like modeled from the adult in the room, like that would have been unheard of. I mean, now it's rare, but I'm certain of the profound effect that that must have had. And I didn't realize that at the time. I was literally doing it because I was like, I wish my bosses had said this to me. And so I I had this whole vision in my head of like, I want to be a different kind of leader. I want to have a different kind of work environment. So I continued, you know, and I told them like, if you ever want to talk about stuff like this, please let me know. And I'm just going to stop talking right now. We can move on have a nice dinner, but I just needed to like put that out there, you know, and, um, and, and I just don't, I'm, I was so over feeling shame about my mental health. I just, I think it's so stupid that we can't talk about it in the same way as anything else. And I don't mean to say that people are stupid or anything like that. It's just, I think there's like a audacity to like silence people. It just seems so absurd to me. And I was so sick of it and I was so over it at that point. And I knew that every time I talked about it, I felt better. So that was why I kept doing it. So I kept talking about it, kept feeling better. And then by the time that it was late 2017, um, a friend of mine was hosting a panel and he was like, you, I'm having people come and talk about, you know, mental health in the industry. And I was like, oh, I'd love to do that. And he's like, really? And I was like, yeah, 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 100%. So he's like, let me know what you're thinking. And so I sent him some things I wanted to talk about. And he was like, absolutely, you're on the panel. So I was on the panel. And that was the first time I ever talked about it to a room of strangers. Because I talked about it, like I said, in my workplace, in my friendship circles, in my family. But I'd never been like, hey, room full of strangers. Like, let's talk about... <laughs> you know, uh, mental health and hospitality and restaurants and stuff. And this was late 2017. The response in that room that night was something I will never forget. It didn't, it went from being a panel to turning into like a room, having a conversation, um, which was really, really powerful. And it was like a me too moment, right? Everyone just putting up their hands being like, cause vulnerability is contagious. So as soon as one or two or three people start opening up, it just like, it's like a tidal wave. A vulnerability it makes it okay so um, after that panel I said to the chef uh, I don't know what you're planning to do with these events but I need to keep doing this like this was a, this was so profoundly healing for me and I think for everyone else in the room too and we also had a mental health professional in the room that night too anyways um, so that's what gave birth to not nine to five and then early 2018 we launched it with a website and then social media channels and blah 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 
And can you, for the folks listening who maybe aren't familiar with it, can you give like a brief summary sort of of what Not 9 to 5 does and what the mission of the organization is? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Not 9 to 5 is like the way it started with what I just described was just like, I, again, very naive <laughs> thinking it was going to be like a local Toronto grassroots initiative. And maybe we'll throw a few events, maybe we'll throw a few workshops and like the end, you know, that's what I thought. And it did start that way for a few months, but very quickly just spiraled with like the demand and the responses we were getting from emails, social media, like all these different ways, even people coming up to me constantly, you know, saying things. Um, and then in early 2020, we finally uh, incorporated it as a nonprofit organization. So since January 2020, um, we've been officially a nonprofit and we're, you know, I, I, I think that we, most of our work is we're leaders in the mental health advocacy and education space. Like you were saying earlier, we've created a lot of industry specific resources. Um, and because of the pandemic, we stopped doing a lot of in-person, you know, community building events, which was really hard. Uh, so we did a lot of stuff online. But um, for the most part, since the pandemic started, we realized that there was just this massive need to get more education out and to get more training out and to just um, put things in people's hands that just wanted to do something but didn't know what to do. Um, we had taken mental health first aid. We were really inspired by that, but I found it to be non-industry specific and way too long and clinical language, academic language, which I'm not a big fan of. And I feel like it's not very accessible, you know? And so for me, I wanted to create an industry specific version of that. So we were lucky enough to get, as a nonprofit, you can get a lot of funding from federal, you know, bodies, whether it's local, municipal, provincial, federal, whatever. And we started applying to grants and we started getting some money and some funding in, um, and with that, we've been able to create, like I said, industry-specific resources like a certification training, um, which is now available online to anyone anywhere in the world. And as well, in April 2020, one thing that 9to5 has been doing for the last two years is trying to build more of an industry conversation and coalition with other like-minded organizations. So trying to meet more people like yourself and, and your organization um, in other parts of the world and trying to learn from each other and not work in silos so much and you know trying to expand our understanding of how deep these issues lie because i think it's really easy to get caught up in oh it's that bad restaurant oh it's that toxic it's that toxic bar oh it's that toxic chef or oh that environment you know don't go there or don't work there or whatever and i i really i think in the last couple of years have learned more about how really truly what is happening, what we're actually talking about is systems of oppression that are embedded into the foundation of our industry. And so if they're in the foundation, anything that grows from that foundation is going to have elements of toxicity or oppression. And so understanding that we're all more similar than different, you know, and creating these kinds of conversations with leaders across the industry across the globe um, is something that we've been really kind of focusing on in the last couple of years. And I think a lot of 
it a lot of what 9 to 5 does as well is spark different you know ideas and conversations for people in all aspects of the industry because i don't ever think of myself as talking to a dishwasher you know to a dishwasher or a server and not talking to leaders and managers and owners i think it's all i think this information is for everyone because people always ask us like oh so who should do the training is it for managers only and i i actually think all of us need to be doing all kinds of trainings and I think ours is just one of many other, you know, I see ours as a, a different foundation to start from, but then keep going. Like there's so many other organizations that offer other kinds of trainings, other education. Um, and so I think that it's just about continuing to create not just awareness, but also create more action around these ideas, right? Because if you take a certification and you do that work, like you've now invested, you've now done a lot of work to get that certification and reading and listening. And then after that, like, what else are you going to do, you know, and add to it. Um, and you're more likely to take a lot of these things and put them into practice when you have like tools that you can refer back to, you know, we have a lot of PDFs that you can keep forever. And you, I've had a lot of managers tell me that they keep them at work and they refer back to them often on a regular basis you know, and learn different terms and expand your understanding of like, oh, brigade system's not the only way. Like we, we can learn how to practice psychological safety. Like, oh, what's psychological safety? Like, how do we do that? And, you know, just all these different tools and putting them in people's hands. Um, and like I said, top down, bottom up. So the bottom up would be like people just entering the industry. We're in a lot of culinary schools now. Our, our program is in the being embedded into the curriculum of certain colleges and universities here in Ontario and ultimately I guess I would love to see that happen more across the industry and again it doesn't just have to be our program it can be other programs but I think that they need to take into consideration like a lot of the conversations that were that I just mentioned like the systems of oppression because it's not just about the leadership styles it also you need to acknowledge intersectionality you need to acknowledge that different you know racialized folks have different experiences in our industry that L the lgbtq plus community has a different experience in our industry you know and and so our our course is written through that lens or attempts to you know really address and acknowledge that out loud um, because I think a lot of times we, we, th we think of that as separate, like, oh, that's DEI training. And I, I really disagree. I think you can't talk about mental health without addressing not just the systems of oppression, hospitality, but the systems of oppression in the world, you know, in the society at large. So, um, so yeah, that's a lot of what non nine to five does And this year for the first time again, in three years, we'll be hosting in-person events every quarter here in Toronto. And, you know, public speaking is something I do often. So that's something else that we do. And yeah, I think that sums up a lot. <laughs> I'm so interested in the emphasis that you guys have on bringing in different charities or organizations that are doing different kinds of advocacy and really integrating the lessons of those groups into the training that you provide. And I think something that we were just talking about this this morning, actually, at work, but the idea that, like, there isn't mental health is something that will affect everything about you. It will affect mm -hmm. your body and your physical health. It will affect your experience of your racial identity. It will expect, 
it will affect the experience of your gender identity, of your sexuality, of your experience with your family, experience with your friends, experience at your workplace. There isn't an element of it that goes untouched. So when we act like if we have one good manager, honestly, it's gonna be great. It will help, it will help. Like, do not get me wrong, but it doesn't allow you to show up wholly and be nurtured. And in, no, I shouldn't say every other industry, a lot of industries have come a long way in acknowledging that intersection. And hospitality, quite classically, is a little bit behind. And by a little bit, I yep. mean a lot. I do think it's changing, but I'm interested in your experience launching the coalition and the industry response to that and sort of what changes you've seen or what challenges you faced as it's gotten off the ground and grown. I think that the coalition is a way for industry leaders and industry workers, really anyone who attends the coalition meetings, um, to practice a lot of unlearning. And, and actually put a lot of these things into practice that we talk about often. Because um, I, like I said, it's, it's one thing to create awareness. It's another thing to take action. And over the last couple of years, that has been so clear to me that a lot of us are still in the learning phase, in the uh, cognitive, you know, you're, you're, you're in the cognitive idea, it's an ideology, it's a theory, or it's a concept that you can think about and agree with and you're nodding and you're like, yep. But we haven't quite reached the stage where we're putting a lot of these things into practice, into action, into, you know, stumbling along the way, you know, to unlearn. Because um, it's messy. And and so I want to be really honest with you. Like, I think parts of the coalition are, are really, like like anything, there's pros and cons. I think parts of the coalition are really powerful, really impactful, so, so healing, so important, so um, inspiring to like learn about what's happening around the world and other parts. And also, I think it's, it's hard. <laughs> it's really hard to unlearn things that you've been conditioned with, programmed with. Um, and I'm speaking for myself here, you know, I'm not, I'm not looking at anyone else being like, oh, well, I can see that it's hard for them. Like, no, 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 it's, it's hard for me and them. It's hard for all of us. It's very clear to me that it's hard for all of us to unlearn things like collaboration over competition, to unlearn things like there's no one leader that we have, we're a collective group of voices to, uh, uh, you know, to, to unlearn things around, um, you know, the thinking part, the, the cognitive stuff to the practice part. And so it takes time. Like we built this coalition two years ago and, oh my gosh, no, it's almost three years now. In April will have been three years and only now are we really getting to a stage where we're starting to be like, okay, we've had all these conversations, <laughs> we've had all of this awareness, now how are we going to actually collectively put this all into action together? And how are, we, like, what are the messages? And so we're actually like, literally right now, this last meeting we had was a couple weeks ago, and what came out of it was, we're going to be drafting some messages that we want to put out as a collective 
where it's not about come to not nine to five, go to Kelly's cause, go to healthy poor, you know, check out chat. It's not about that. It's not about like my group or your group or whatever. It's just about, we need a collective united front voice of what are the key messages that need to, you know, be communicated out. And then what are the action steps around that um, as a collective globally? So I think, you know, there's aspects of it that I think are really, like I said, powerful, impactful. It's the biggest thing I think I've taken from the coalition is that we're all more similar than different. Like as humans, but also as an industry, it doesn't matter what country you're in and what country I'm in. It's a different version of the same story everywhere. So understanding that has been enormous. Also understanding that that can be true and in certain parts of the world, certain topics are a bigger concern than in other environments, right? So there might be like higher, you know, rates of sexism and misogyny in certain parts of the world, while in other parts of the world, racism is not well understood and, you know, isn't being anti-racism isn't being practiced and addressed as much as in other parts of the world. So like different things affect different things, but overall it's like very, very similar. And so that has been huge because that has now informed that like, okay, it's not just me. It's validating across the board. We're all up against the same systems of oppression. We're all up against, you know, the same, struggle with hospitality being like you said so far behind and and how can we you know come and move it forward and then also it's really validated that we've had an epidemic since before the pandemic of mental health and substance use challenges and since the pandemic has started unfortunately and sad to report that there is an increase in suicides and substance use related deaths and so that's also what's bringing us together is that we're so over losing friends um, where we really just, it's not even about like which group is, is doing what anymore. You know what I mean? It, it, that's so irrelevant. And it's just about, you know, trying to come as a collective together to figure out how we can um, really just move the dial forward together, regardless of where people are going to go seek and accept help. Um, so that's, yeah, that's, that's kind of, I think, a, a good summary of what I've taken from the coalition um, for, the, oh yeah, over the course of the last like two and a half years. Something so enormous that you touch on is the labor around building a shared vocabulary, a truly shared vocabulary, vocabulary, pardon me, and how long that can take. And when I think about the fact that you're, the coalition is people that are like-minded, they want similar things, they've had they have a, a, enough of an understanding of their experience that they know that, that it's possible to change it and that there might be ways to do it. And when I think about how long that can take, and then I think about when we're in the industry or in our individual communities and in our individual countries, that we're walking into environments where some people will really care about mental health. Some people will believe that they don't care about mental health. There's going to be different levels of literacy around it. There's going to be different cultural practices around it. And it's a really good reminder of slow and steady and that we need to have so much patience around it. 
But I think it's the thing that I encourage the most or something that we talk to with the businesses and individuals that we work with. Like, we don't care where you get help. We just want you to know where help is and how to access it. That's what we want. We don't want anyone else to die. And we believe that if you interact with the right resources, whatever that training or a helpline or an EAP or whatever it is, if you can walk into work the next day in a different way than you did the day before, have an interaction with somebody in a different way than you did the day before, that is where we'll find successes. And I think it's something that we have to do quite often is we'll, we'll go in and we'll find on a hard day, find a thing of feedback. And in that feedback, they're like, wow, I actually had a conversation about this stuff yesterday with somebody and I got it wrong. And today I'm going to go and make that right. And that's like, okay, we can keep doing what we're doing and we can keep moving forward so that when it takes a really long time to get to that utopia, that big picture change we want to see, that we refuel our tanks on the small differences that we're making. I'm interested about the, the differences in communities depending where they are. And I was seeing, when I went through the Connect training, the diversity of voices that were reflected in that training was so impressive. And I wondered how much of that was reflective of the diversity of community in the hospitality scene in Toronto and how much of that was a, an ambitious project to make sure you included as many voices as possible. Um, and I say that because here, while there are specific resources and it is getting better for folks that come from other marginalized groups, it definitely has a long way to go. And I'm curious about your experience also as a woman of color in the industry. And because I used to spend a lot of time in Toronto and I see it as a really diverse place, but so is London. And then when you go into the food scene and when you go into sort of the, the upper echelons, as it were, the places that get a lot of attention, boy, does that become one demographic really, really quickly. Yes. So I would say I agree with everything you just said. Um, I think Toronto is very multicultural. I do think hospitality community is very multicultural. I think where we stop being so multi, and not just multicultural, but also just like diverse and inclusive and equitable, you know, I, I do see that. I do see that in our, in our city and I do see that in our industry and I also don't see it in you know when like you said once you start getting into more of the leadership and who has the most power and privilege so I would argue that unfortunately still to this day the people with the most power and privilege are it's not a very diverse inclusive group um, still I would say it has evolved in the last couple of years for sure a little bit and I do feel really, really um, kind of relieved and, and also grateful that I, I got to see some of that in my lifetime. You know, I really, there's, I think we underestimate how long things take, like to your earlier point. Um, and I think a lot of that comes, I think a lot of that is part of oppression though. Like the more I've learned about white supremacy culture and like the pillars of white supremacy, it's really helped me understand that that's all that that that's all um natural that's a natural reaction to how change takes place and this idea of instant gratification or this like again sense of urgency which is a pillar of white supremacy culture sense of urgency is not real 
it's something that's fabricated and and built into us and conditioned, especially in the hospitality industry. When you work in service, it's all about sense of urgency, right? Exactly. And like, I understand. I'm not saying that that can't exist. I'm not saying that that's a bad thing at all. So this is like, a, there's so much nuance in these things. All I'm saying is that we also need to be very, very aware of where that makes sense to have sense of urgency and where it's toxic to have a sense of urgency. And, you know, um, obviously if someone's ordered something and they're waiting for it and they've paid for it and it, like this is part of your service and your business, of course, absolutely, I understand there needs to be some sort of sense of urgency. But when it comes to like conversations of change, systems of change, change management, all of these things, there's no time and place for a sense of urgency in these things. Um, that's just not how change works. And whether you want it to be fast or not is totally irrelevant, um, you know, especially the change in human behavior. You know, I'm not, a, I'm not a mental health professional, I'm not a therapist, but I work with so many of them. Some of my closest friends are therapists or psychologists or social workers or other types of healers that are not in the, you know, industrial complex. And I think that what I've learned is that truly change it's, it's not linear, it's unlinear. And, and it's not something that we can uh, force or rush through. And I think, you know, capitalism also wants us to always be rushing and always be busy because if you do that, you're, un you're unable yeah. to, to see resist. what's, you have no, first of all, yeah, you have no energy to resist. You have no power to resist because you're exhausted and busy and, and blind to it all because you're so busy. Um, but also you can't even see it. Like forget resistance. You can't, you don't even realize what's happening to you and around you, you know, um, and what's, and it's all, and that it's all by design that it's all part of the whole design of the system, right? So I think for me, learning more about the pillars of white supremacy has absolutely been one of the most enlightening, you know, experiences of my life. I'm so grateful for the knowledge and information out there. And it's abundant. Like you can just find these websites and read about white supremacy characteristics, like Google white supremacy characteristics, and you will absolutely come across these incredible teachers that have existed for decades that get no credit in my opinion. Um, and learning to kind of, um, unlearn again, like, like learning to unlearn is, is so uncomfortable and it's so, it's so, uh, it feels unnatural, you know? So I think to go back to your question, like you were asking about, you know, this, this multicultural or this like inclusiveness, whether it exists or not. I mean, I think it does. I think it still lacks though in, in like I said, in the places of the most power and privilege. Um, when I was putting that course together, it was all very intentional and it was absolutely curated that way. Um, I just don't, I don't, I don't think we see from enough faces and voices. I think we're always hearing from the same fucking faces and voices and the same fucking opinions and they just keep getting pounded into us as if that's the only way. And I just, 
I'm going to go on a bit of a rant here, but like, I don't really buy into Michelin. I don't really care what a tire company thinks of our, our, of our industry. I don't really buy into 50 best, 100 best, you know, all of these kinds of lists and awards. I think they are marketing at best. I mean, they literally know? are like they're, they're paid for. It's like the Oscars. Like it literally is all a scam. I hate to say it. And I'm not, I'm not trying to be insensitive to anyone who has earned a Michelin star. I'm not trying to be insensitive to anyone who's worked really hard in their career to get to a level of applaud, applause or, you know, of, of recognition. I am not saying that that's not something that you can't be important to you. That can be important to you and it can be completely irrelevant and offensive to me. <laughs> like those two things can be true, right? Like it, I'm not telling anyone else to agree with me. I'm just saying what I see as someone who has now for the last four years deeply studied and researched a lot of these things about our industry because it was really important for me to understand how did we get here before I started to think about where are we going. And so once I started to understand like the colonialist also influence on hospitality, you know, and all of these things, um, it makes perfect sense to me that these lists and awards and Michelin systems and food media and how all of them are upholding, they're complicit in upholding the way things are. And when anyone ever tells you, well, that's the way it's always been, run in the opposite direction. You know, why do we do it this way? Because that's the way it's always been done. That is the worst sentence you can ever say to anybody who is coming up in the industry and trying to learn. Because that's literally the opposite of psychological safety. That's literally the opposite of innovation and creativity. And so, you know, I think for me, again, going back to why did I choose the people to speak in that course that I chose? Or I didn't choose them. I asked them. I said, would you be willing to share your story? Because they had shared it with me in an organic, authentic way, just as like people I knew. And then once I heard it, I was like, I know this is a big ask, but like, obviously we paid people for their time and labor, but I was like, would you be open to sharing your story on camera? so that other people can hear it, you know, from you, because the way you're describing it and sharing it is so different than what I've heard other people talk about it like. And so we, you know, I gave them the questions ahead of time and everyone knew what they were walking into. There was no surprises, there was no panic, there was no like nothing. Everyone was very well prepared for those conversations. And, and I also had put myself, you know, in those situations before where I thought about like, what would I, what did I need and want in those environments when I'm talking about really hard, you know, topics. Um, and it all went really well. And I think in Toronto, yeah, we do have a lot of amazing, you know, diverse voices and faces in the industry. Unfortunately, we don't hear from a lot of them enough. So when I had the opportunity to hire people or invite people into this course, um, and everyone said yes, like, it, like no one even batted an eye. Like it was like an automatic, yes, please. I would love to be part of this. Thank you for asking. It was a lot of thank you for asking me, which also really like was amazing, but also bothered me. Cause I was like, it it's just, a bummer. this is what exactly it's a bummer. And what I guess I'm trying to say with this whole answer to this question is that I think it's the way it is because people don't ask other faces and voices. And I also think that even when they do ask, they likely aren't asking in the right way. They likely aren't creating that environment that I'm talking about of like emotional safety, psychological safety, so that people feel comfortable and safe saying yes. Because I've also heard 
I've also heard the argument of, well, I asked people of color. Well, I asked the LGBTQ plus community members to come and speak and everyone said no. Examine and why they're saying no or you haven't done exactly. your job. Yeah. Exactly. And so to my point, I'm like, I, I think it's yes, ask and also examine how you're asking yeah. and examine also, is that the only time you've talked to those people? Probably. <laughs> Right? Because uh, this is not like these are not relationships that I just invented in the moment and was like, hey, random stranger, like <laughs> I want to use you and tokenize you and put you in my course. And then you're never going to hear from me again. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, of course, you have to be in community with people if you're going to ask them to literally like bleed on camera for yeah. you. Yes. And, and so I, I think it was all part and parcel. It comes together. I think it all has to be interwoven and interconnected. And you yourself, as whoever is asking, need to be really reflecting on why you have found yourself in a situation where A, you don't ask, or B, why are you not practicing you know, being in community with a more diverse, inclusive group mm -hmm. of people on a more regular basis. Mm -hmm. I think it, it speaks to, ties in really nicely to something you mentioned before, but that sense of vulnerability flowing both ways, that sense of safety that people need to arrive, to have those conversations, to start to change things, to be more visible, like that doesn't exist in a vacuum. And if you expect it to, like they need to take connect. They need to get certified. <laughs> But I mean that, like they, the lack of education is alarming. It is. And I've heard from, listen, this stuff is also like, I do not want to make it sound like this stuff is easy. You know, this stuff is hard. It's painful sometimes, you know, it is so uncomfortable that you literally have like physical reactions to the discomfort of these things. Like, I really want to highlight that. And I'm not saying, Ooh, wow. Like, come and join this fun thing. Like, no, it's not always fun. Like sometimes it's not fun. And I understand people that are like, well, then why would I want to do it? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, why would I want to go and put myself in an uncomfortable scenario? And I would, I would, and then what I've explained before to a lot of cis hetero white males in, that have a lot of power and privilege in this industry is that the reason that this is so important, especially for you to go through and learn and read and watch and understand is because you, you don't know all of your blind spots. There's things that you don't even realize that you're doing that are complicit in upholding th the way things are. And so, yes, you may think that you have like come so far, you know, and you know so much and it's the whole argument of like, but I have a black friend or like, but my best friend is gay or, but I'm, you know, I'm married to, or my cousin is like, that's all he, like, it has nothing to do with what we're talking about. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I think for me, why I, it's so important for them to, especially, like I said, cis, hetero, white males to go, that have the most power and privilege to go through something like Connected and get certified is because you, you have more power and influence than you realize. I think, first of all, all of us do. That's something I've learned is that I have so much power and influence. You have so much power. Every one of us, I don't care if you're 17 and you just started, you know, or you've been whatever in this industry forever. Everyone has power and influence. 
And it's just a matter of acknowledging that and figuring out also like, okay, where does, where do I lie in all of this? Where do I exist in all of this? And, you know, going back to white supremacy too, like how much I've learned from studying that is that there's this famous saying by a poet called Wante, and it's that white supremacy is not a shark. White supremacy is the water. Mm. And I think for me, that explains it all. You know, it's that this is the water we're all swimming in. This is the system that we all are living in. So it's important for all of us to acknowledge that and learn more about it so that we can, again, figure out where in the water we sit. Are we sitting over here, over there? Like, how am I influencing other people in the water? How am I making other people feel around me with the things that I'm doing? You know, um, and so I've had, yeah, I've had chefs that have told me, like, your course was so hard for me. It was so, so hard for me to go through and, and realize because, I, because they felt so bad. There's so many things that they didn't realize. Um, you know, I think a lot of us that are maybe people of color or women or other genders, marginalized groups, segments of the population, for a lot of us, I mean, it's our lived experience. So it's like, well, yeah, of course I knew that that was happening, you know? Um, but I think for, I'm, I'm not trying to excuse anyone's behavior, but I honestly think that there's a lot of people in power and privilege in our industry, especially, that genuinely don't know. They do not realize, like I really, I really don't think that they realize how their behavior is is upholding these systems. I also think they don't understand how upholding that system is the death knell of this industry. Yes. Look at rates of turnover. Look at yes. the burnout. Look at the amount of people that are now in crisis or heaven forbid passing away by suicide. Like they're, that's, yeah, it's not fun, correct. But why should you do it? Do you want this industry to continue to be dynamic and innovative and creative and fun and have people actually want to be in it? That's why, if, if not for any other reason, I mean, you should do it so you're not an asshole, but if that's not motivational <laughs> enough for you, like, that's it. I love that. Oh, Rachel, that's like, so good. I think that's so fucking important <laughs> to highlight and amplify is because it is the only way forward to keep our industry thriving. Because unfortunately right now, it's barely surviving. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like you said, to your point, the great resignation is something I never thought I would see in my lifetime. Um, I, you know, I hear people call it the labor shortage. I fucking hate that term. I don't believe in it. I think it's a shortage of workplaces that lack physical and psychological safety, that lack adequate compensation, that lack support, resources, benefits, etc. Um, it's the shortage of workplaces, you know, that ha that can offer these things for people. And so, of course, during something like a global pandemic which is a trauma, a global trauma with so much collective grief and so much, you know, happening that forced us to be in stillness for the first time for some people ever, um, you know, and gave us financial insecurity, gave us job insecurity, gave us, you know, physical, so much... like un unsafety, Physi feeling yes. physically vulnerable in a way that many of us are all the time, but a lot we're experiencing for the first time all together, you know, and all feeling unsafe and, and very like it felt dangerous, you know, to even have social connection in person and all these things. Of course, during that time, people had 
epiphanies and people had awakenings and people had realized like the time to realize I'm being exploited. I'm depleted. I'm in a toxic work environment. And oh, interesting, like a couple months later, I'm being offered these other opportunities to make more money in a safer work environment. Bye, hospitality. <laughs> See you never. Have a good life, you know? And like, of course that happened. And, and so that's what I'm saying. Like, I never thought I would see that in my lifetime. And I'm not saying, yay, there's restaurants that are going out of business because they can't find folks to work in them. I'm not applauding that, obviously. It's so sad every time here in Toronto, it's like every week there's a new closure. Um, they're dropping like flies and it's absolutely heart-wrenching and devastating to me. What I'm saying is I am applauding people waking up and taking control of their own you know, careers and lives and doing what's right for them. And I think it's time for our industry to also wake up and realize that if, like you said, if something's not, you know, working, if I'm not being able to retain my staff, if my turnover rates are really high, if I, my profitability is fairly low, if you know, my, my margins are being affected, if, um, you know, everything feels like financially I'm not thriving, then you need to also examine the connection to all these topics that we're talking about because they're all interconnected and you're right. I don't know how people need to hear it, but sometimes I've also had to say it in a way that speaks to the financial success of your business. Because if it's not, if you're not going to really think about your own emotional, you know, health or the emotional health of your team, then really at the end of the day, the cost of doing nothing is everything. So you need to think about the health of your business and financially speaking, there is no business model where the way we've been treating people, the way we, the way we've been going is a thriving financial model. It's just not. And even the ones that have been able to thrive or quote unquote thrive or be successful on exploiting people, like for example, even like the Noma thing that's blown up in the last couple of months. Um, a lot of times it's not actually true. A lot of it is being hidden behind closed doors because you're not looking at their books. So you don't actually know how quote unquote successful they are, but also, um, it's not sustainable long-term. So you may be successful for a short period of time or for a period of time, but it's not long-term sustainability. And you also don't have a return on investment that businesses that are investing in their teams and psychological safety and workplace mental health and a lot of other you know, leadership training things um, that are important and benefits and resources and support for your team. The businesses that are investing in that are seeing a return on investment. The more they invest for the longer period of time they invest for, you get a larger return. And so you, if, if you're running a business where you're not doing any of these things, you're not getting that return ever. So, and it also your profitability is affected by like we were talking about turnover costs are exponential. This is something I think our industry does not talk about enough. The cost of turnover is it. So in the U S and in, in, I'll say North America, it's not just the U S in North America, turnover per person per year costs about $15,000. And the turnover rate in a lot of restaurants is between 75 to 100%. So if you multiply $15,000, right, times however many people 75% of your business is, that's an 
massive amount of money that's leaving your business. And that's part of why your profitability isn't through the roof. The other thing I like to talk about that I don't think enough people talk about is that why are we comfortable with single digit profit margins? Lots of other industries and lots of other businesses where you're successful, you have double digit profit margins, right? You're not surviving off 10, you know, 9%, 8%. Like, no, you're leaving the like up to 20% in some businesses or more of profit margins. And I think we've become too accustomed to seeing low profit margins as normal. And to me, that's not normal. That's just an indication that you don't have a successful business model. Again, going back to the Noma thing, that's not a successful business model. And not only is it not a successful business model, it's not a business model. That's not business. That's exploitation. So there's a huge difference between the two. And I think getting away from talking about this out loud and saying like, oh, well, free labor is part of my business model. No, it's not. That's not a business. <laughs> like if you go if you go to business school and you learn about business models, that is not business. That is literally exploiting people and lying about it. And then, of course, you waited 20 years to finally pay people. Again, only because you were called out. Again, not a business. That is completely, that is like modern day enslavement. And you're calling it a stage and you're, you know, you're getting awarded. Again, what I was saying in the beginning. And then food media and systems like Michelin are awarding you and applauding you. And so again, it's all interconnected. It all comes together. Um, so I think, yes, however you need to hear it, whether it's the business argument or whether it's the emotional argument or whether it's the human argument or whether it's, you know, however you need to hear it, I think that, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's so beyond arguing. We have to get away from the argument of this all. And, and we need to just like understand that however you want to look at this financially, practically, you know, emotionally, other industries have known this for a long time. We are very, very far behind. And part of our software upgrade is starting to build this into our practices and our own inner work is required for that, of course. But there's ways to practically, you know, invest in these things and build them into your business so that you can be a thriving business ultimately. I could literally talk to you about this for the next four hours, but I'm just conscious of the time. I don't want to take up too much of your day. I just want to ask you one very quick question. In the current economic climate slash political shit show, obviously advocacy takes an abundant amount of energy and optimism, as does working in like literally any hospitality business right now. How do you create circumstances for yourself to keep going? How are you taking care of yourself right now? That's a beautiful question. Thank you for asking that. Um, and it's nice to talk about like, you know, other aspects of this work other than just, you know, how hard, <laughs> how hard it is and why we do it. Um, I think for me, I have a lot of, I was saying to you earlier, I don't really unfortunately have a lot of mentors in real life, but I have a lot of teachers. Um, so there's people that I don't have never met but have profoundly changed me uh, from the inside out for me, because there's so much noise about things that I, that don't help me, that aren't helpful to me. I find the news cycle very toxic and like not helpful to me. And I'm very careful about what I expose my brain to, because I think for me, the only way I'm able to do this work is by practicing, um, a lot of compassion, a lot of self-compassion, um, on a daily basis. 
because I feel like we live in a, in a world where there's not. And so if we're not, you know, if a lot of us are living in a system where we don't have a lot of compassion for each other, it becomes really hard to have compassion for ourselves. And I realized in the last couple of years that I was, you know, I have having a lot of inner dialogue that was not very compassionate with myself. And I was really, really hard on myself. So the only way that I'm able to keep doing this and have optimism and have hope and, and really truly believe in transformation and transformative justice and really believe in the future of hospitality is by having compassion for myself first and foremost, and then also practicing compassion for others. And it's not just empathy, because I think sometimes you hear a lot about empathy. Empathy is trying to put yourself in the shoes of someone else and think about their, their situation. And there's this great video I saw once where like someone fell down a hole and they were trying to show the difference between empathy and compassion. And empathy is like looking from the top of the hole down and being like, oh, that sucks. Like, I'm sorry that's happening to you. And compassion is going down and sitting with them in the hole. And so I think I'm really trying to practice compassion on a regular daily basis with myself. And then that helps me have compassion for others. And then, like I said, as well, having teach, like surrounding my brain and, and curating my podcast or my, you know, where I get my news from and all these things and being very intentional about who the source is. So some of the teachers that I'm talking about are like Dr. Jennifer Mullen. She runs an Instagram account called Decolonizing Therapy. She has a website called Decolonizing Therapy as well. And her teachings around the sacredness of rage and how sacred, how sacred rage is, how sacred grief is, um, how sacred boundaries are. Um, I've learned a lot fundamentally about my own self, but also the world at large through her teachings. Uh, I've gone to workshops of hers and her Instagram is incredible. I highly recommend it. Um, as well, uh, Trisha Hersey of the Nat Ministry. So there's an Instagram account called the Nat Ministry and she wrote a book that literally changed my life um, called Rest is, Rest is Resistance. And that has taught me so much about the sacredness of rest and how sacred rest is. And so why I bring these up is because they've informed now how I live my life. And boundaries has become something that's very like important and, and, and natural and normal for me um, to practice and to respect. So if you set a boundary with me, you know, me respecting your boundary is part of that practice for me. And I think that is a lot of unlearning because I grew up like, so in the family I described mm -hmm. and in, in the hospitality industry, we don't have a lot of boundaries and we also don't understand boundaries very well. And we have a lot of, you know, uh, lack of practice around setting boundaries and around respecting boundaries. Um, and then that actually leads me to a third person who's also a therapist, um, Nitra Tawab, who runs an account by, by her name. And she has a book as well about boundaries um, these three people have completely changed my understanding of myself, of my childhood, of my, uh, work environments that I, you know, let myself exist in and the impact that they had on my mind and my body. And I think, you know, then taking that to a, a third thing that has helped me is really just making sure that there's certain things I'm always doing.
um, regardless of how I feel. So I think when I was younger, I used to be more inclined to think like, oh, but I'm not in the mood to do that or I don't want to do that, you know. And now I've come to start to understand that a lot of things that I need to do, it doesn't matter if I want to do it or not. And it doesn't matter what mood. I have to do them and I have to take it as seriously as I would, you know, anything like I was saying earlier about physical health and mental health. I think it's really important to, to treat them the same because the mind is in the body and it's all interconnected. It's one system. So for me, it's really important to realize that like I need to get outside. I need to get around nature. I need to move my body no matter what. And like, sure, are there like one days, two days, like here are times when, you know, you don't feel well and you can't, of course, that's natural. And, and again, rest is sacred. So that's important. But I'm talking about overall, like, how do I get through the years of advocacy work? It's like really maintaining these practices in the same way I would, you know, care for anyone else. Like as a mom, I care for my kids or as a friend, I care for my friends or as a manager, I care for my team. I have to really make sure that I'm doing certain things to care for myself so that I can continue to do, you know, certain advocacy work. Everyone you talked about, I'll link into the episode description so that folks can go and find them really easily. I am going to ask you just a few quick fire questions. What is your favorite sauce? Hot sauce. What is your favorite view in Toronto? I live near Casa Loma. You don't know mm-hmm. where that is. I but do indeed. This... Oh, yeah, you do. I forgot. You know mm-hmm. Toronto. <laughs> so uh, beside Casa Loma, there's a set of stairs. And I live near there. And so I love the view from the top of that, of that stairs uh, of the city. If you could eat at one restaurant for the rest of your life, what restaurant would it be? There's one restaurant that came to mind, but it doesn't exist anymore. It was a Peruvian restaurant. Uh, a family friend of mine owned it. It was called the Boulevard Cafe, and her her team and all of the food and the, the whole environment was just so beautiful and delicious and fresh. You know, um, I could definitely eat there every day, but it doesn't exist anymore, sadly. What is your favorite dessert? It's Chilean. It's called Torta de Milojas, which is like a Chilean version of Meifoy. You know how they have all the layers, except with instead of cream, we don't call it dulce de leche in Chile. We call it manjar, but it's like a dulce de leche. And it's like a very thin pastry and then, and then manjar and then pastry and then manjar. And you do like many, many, many layers and it's like very high. It's so sweet, so much sugar. I'm not even into sweets, but that dessert gets me. It's my favorite. Who is your dream dinner guest, dead or alive? You know what? I'm going to go with one of the people I mentioned. I would love to have dinner with Dr. Jennifer Mullen. That would be amazing to have dinner with her and learn from her in person. We're going to tag her and be like, dinner? Question mark? When she started following me on Instagram, I literally like had an emotional reaction. I was like tears in my eyes. Like she knows who I am. <laughs> I'm genuinely so happy for you. I'm absolutely it was such a beautiful it. moment. Like she follows not nine to five. Oh my goodness, it That's was really amazing. cool. I cannot thank you enough for having this conversation. You are so insightful and brilliant and inspiring and a phenomenal role model in this industry. Thank you so so much for taking the time. I feel the same way about you. The feeling is mutual. Thank you so much. Beyond the Past is produced by Kelly's Cause Foundation. For more information about Kelly's Cause, please head to kellyscause.com 
or find us on Instagram at Kelly's Cause.